verses 34 through 40. read from this brief passage and uh, we'll pray that God's blessing would be upon us. Matthew 22 verses 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, Which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that this is indeed uh, the very base, the moral basis of what the prophets of old came to bear witness to, that you require a holy people, and in Christ alone we can be that holy people. Those who truly love you with all their affections, with all their lives, infecting the community around them with the love of God. And by so being filled with your love, we may love others. Lord, help this reality be upon our minds this evening. Lord, help us to take this away with us this evening with further clarity that you have called us to love. You have called us to love you. But you have called us to love others so that they in turn might love you as well. Lord, we ask that that would be a reality for us this evening. We ask this in your Son's name. Amen. Our passage from this morning, uh, the great Shema of Deuteronomy 6, is repeated by each of the Synoptic Gospels. Here in Matthew 22, uh, there's a parallel uh, to Mark 12 that Pastor Wynn preached on not too long ago. And then Luke 10 references uh, the Shema as a response to Jesus, so a little bit different. Just a quick exegetical note, uh, in each of the references to the Shema in the Gospels, the Gospel writers use different terminology uh, from the Hebrew in Deuteronomy 6.4. It's never heart, soul, might, as we see. Uh, most likely, the Gospel writers were working from different Greek translations of Deuteronomy, and these translations used different words, And this is likely why we get variants in the Gospels. Uh, It's similar to to when I or Tiago read the ESV uh, when Pastor Wynn preaches from the New King James. Uh, Sometimes it's a little bit off, uh, but you get the gist. Uh, That said, no matter the exact wording, we should understand that each of the Synoptic Gospels was referencing the Shema of Deuteronomy 6, the hero Israel. The fact that this episode, or or episodes rather, of Jesus' ministry is repeated in each synoptic gospel is telling. It underscores the Ten Commandments as the foundational ethic for the New Testament church. Our ethic as Christians is is to a love that stems from who we are as God's people. And as we saw this morning, we are to love our fellow man as an extension of our love for God. Or to put it more in a biblical language, and actually what we just read, we love because he first loved us. To continue our metaphor of the fountain, our heart, the affections, overflows into our souls, our lives, and it fills our might. At the end of the sermon this morning, we saw that our love for God was community impacting. Our love for God served to tell others about him, his gospel, and his worship. And as we will see tonight, the last six commandments do that as well. In obedience to God's moral law, particularly the last six, we are doing more than keeping from sin. 
we are actively showing to our fellow, fellow image bearers and pointing them to Christ. So with that said, I want us to spend more time on the second great commandment, as Jesus calls it, the love of neighbor. We read in Matthew 22, verse 39, these words. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. From this verse, I want us to look at two words, and these will be our two broad points tonight. I want us to look at the words love and neighbor. And after we look at these two words in more exegetical uh, detail, I want to bring out some implications for us as it relates to the Ten Commandments and how we live in today's world. So first, what is love? As I wrote that sentence and as I say it now, I have the song in my head. What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. I'm sorry, it's, it's just, that, 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 that just comes up every time. Couldn't help myself. I love the Hebrew language. For me, it's easier. It's a little more fluid. But I do have to recognize that the words aren't as precise. But Greek... It's the polar opposite. There are these tiny little rules for every sentence, and it's very annoying, and it makes me very upset, and it can get complicated at times. But the precision of the Greek language is incredibly helpful when we are looking at individual words. The, the word for love that is ascribed to Jesus in Matthew 22, verse 39, comes from the term uh, agapao, one of the many terms used in the Greek language for love, you might know the noun form, agape. The official baseline definition for agapao is this, to have a warm regard for and an interest in another, to cherish, to have affection for, to love. That's BDAG. We're getting scholarly tonight. So we can say that Jesus commands us to have a warm regard for and interest in our neighbor. But what does that mean? What does it mean to have warm regard for our neighbor? And what does it mean to have an interest in our neighbor? So ultimately, what we should be asking is, what kind or quality of love is to be exhibited towards my neighbor? I want to argue that this kind of love is best described, the agapa, uh, uh, agapaeo, excuse me, uh, love is best described as this. Here's a definition. Love, in, in the biblical sense here, but love uh, that Jesus is calling us to, love is a devoted service to the object of our affections, the object being our neighbor in this case. So there are two things here, devotion and affection in our definition. So let's take the first. The word agapao is used in Matthew 22, verse 37. You shall agapao the Lord your God. And as we touched on this morning, our love for God is not some pitter-patter of the heart with no real objective displays or works of love. Love for God required a devoted interest in Him. It required real tangible signs of love and service, which I'm going to call devotion. To love God required signs of devotion, a life of holiness, evangelistic zeal, a communion with Him through the means of grace. I made mentions to Romans 12 uh, uh, this morning, though I didn't name it, I uh, uh, cited it. Uh, I, I used this ci a citation to explain this devotion to God. Devotion is simply a service marked by sacrifice. To be devoted to God, to, to serve Him, is to sacrifice for Him. To love with agapao love is to give up ourselves in the service to God or in the devotion of God. So this love is a sacrificial love. It is a love that gives up in order to serve the object of affection. So, you, uh, so how should we understand this love in relation to man? We clearly are not to love man as we are to love God. We love God properly by Him being the object of worship. But it's sin if we do that to our fellow man. We shouldn't love our neighbors with the same means or quantity of love that we are to have for God. God is the supreme object of love, and He has unique ways that we are called to love Him in. We are not to have the same quantity of love that we do for God. That is placing God and man on equal footing, which is idolatry. But the key here is this. 
the quality of love. The quality of love here is key. Just as we are to serve God through sacrifice, we are to serve our neighbor through sacrifice. To love is to give up in order to serve. This is what I mean by devoted service. Let's move on to that second aspect of love, affection. I'll repeat our definition. Love is a devoted service to the object of our affection. Again, earlier today we talked about how love for God must be rooted in our affections. In order to truly and properly love God, we must have an inward bent toward Him, not away from Him. There needs to be an affection for the one we are to serve. Our thoughts and desires should be oriented to those that we are called to love in this way, to sacrifice in this way. Again, we speak and love differently in relation to the object. For God, we love Him because He is love and goodness and perfection itself. The reason we were, we were created was to love Him in our affections and to have that overflow into all facets of our lives. But for man, we have to be more nuanced here. We have to be more nuanced with how we love man. We do not love our fellow man or neighbor because we were not immediately created for that. We do not love our fellow image bearers because they are to captivate our affections in and of themselves. So how are we to have affections for our fellow man? Our affection for our fellow man, and this is key, our affection for our fellow man is to stem from the fact that no matter how lovely they are in holiness or how despicable they are in their sin, they are made in the image of God. Our affection draws upon the deep love that we have for our God and that in turn is to feed our affections for our fellow man. We are not called to have affection for our fellow man in and of themselves. We are called to have an affection for those that in their, in their being are the distinct manifestation of God's morality and rationality, the image of God. They are the sign of God's own being. In the sermons of the second commandment, I said that, the man, that mankind is to be seen as the proper idols or icons of God. We literally reflect and point to our Creator, from the holy of us to the most hardened and wicked of us, by the mere fact that we are image bearers. So when we show affection and serve our fellow man in love, it does not terminate on them. It does not terminate on them. It terminates upon our God through our loving obedience to have affection for our fellow man. So is this difficult to love a sinful man, a wicked man, though he is an image bearer? Is that difficult? Yes. But is what we are called to? Yes. I have more to say on this in just a moment, but I just want to take a minute to build this definition of love from a biblical example. This love that, that I'm displaying here is the Christian ethic in both our vertical and horizontal relationships. In the Christian worldview, morality is always relational. Morality is always relational. And for the Christian, our relationships, our morality is marketed or, or marked by affectionate, sacrificial love. This quality of devoted service, this giving up to serve those in genuine affection, is the ethic of Jesus Christ. We love in this way because Christ loved God, vertical, and man, horizontal, in this way. For the greatest example of this love, we must think of the crucifixion. As it relates to this kind of love, the crucifixion is altogether more meaningful with the robust covenant theology to help us understand it. And for most of us here, uh, we have been attending the Sunday School Zooms, and I would highly encourage you all, if you have not, please uh, start attending. Um, I, I, it didn't look like I was there today, but I was in the background because I was working on this, but I was still there. It, it has been a delight to go through the sacraments because Seth has done such a wonderful job in how we are to study the sacraments. The reason we study the sacraments is not merely to understand why we dip people in water or drink grape juice together at the first of the month. Properly understood, the sacraments are a study in the, 
in, in Christ's love to God and to us. So if we really want to have a deep knowledge of this love that Christ has for God and for his fellow man, I wish that we had recorded those because I would say go back and listen to it. Just go talk to Seth. Thank you, Seth, for your service. So commercial over. Um, To help us understand Christ as the exemplar of our ethic, we need to remember why Christ died for us on the cross. On the eve of his crucifixion, Christ gathered in the uh, the garden with his disciples to pray. And in his prayer, we are able to see the mind of Jesus as it relates to the crucifixion. If you don't mind, please open your Bibles to John 17. John 17. Jesus is praying. He's praying here, and he, he's, uh, it's the high priestly prayer, in which he uh, is ex- preparing himself to go before the cross for his people. Uh, and he prays a whole bunch of things, but I think in verse 19, uh, th- this will be helpful for our purposes tonight. In John 17, verse 19, Jesus states this. Uh, this might be the half there. And for their sake, and for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. At this point, Jesus knew where he was going. He knew that the cross was on the other side of the morning. So in his prayer, we must understand the word consecrate there as the word uh, that the high priest would understand. The high priest consecrated themselves for the work of atoning the people's sins. Jesus is consecrating himself. He is giving himself over to the work of atoning his people's sins at the crucifixion. Also in verse 19, notice who Jesus is specifically doing this work for. For their sake. Immediately, this verse has in view his disciples, but verse 20 explicitly expands this work to any and all believers. I do not ask for these only, the the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So what we should see here is that Jesus consecrated himself. He devotedly served us by sacrificing himself. He gave of himself to serve us. Us and he served us in this way, and this is important with affection. Christ consecrated himself, he gave himself up with a purpose to save us, to serve us. But it's important to know he did it with affection. In verse 13. Jesus explains why he is going to serve us by dying and going to the Father. Please turn there with me. Verse 13. This is what verse 13 states. This is the purpose why he serves us. That they may have my joy. That they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Brothers, Jesus didn't hum and haw his way to the cross for us. As he was going to Golgotha, he didn't murmur in his heart, Man, I can't believe I had to do this for these people. Man, that Daniel, he can be a jerk sometimes. That Chris, I tell you. That Mary Margaret, you know, ah, I just don't know about her. I guess I'll do this. No. Jesus didn't hum and haw at the people he served. Brothers, he had an affection for you. Christ served and died for us with true affection so that we might know the joy of God. Brothers, that's not something that you pray or do for someone that you're apathetic towards. Christ has a true affection for those that he served. He loved us both in his actions and in his inward disposition. This is why the example that Christ sets for us and how we are to love others is so important. We serve sacrificially with affection that others may be blessed and know the joy of our God. That's why we serve. That's why we sacrifice. That's why we do what we do. 
we genuinely have affection for them because Christ genuinely has an affection for us. This leads to the second major reason. We must note another reason why Christ died for us. Christ served his fellow man in this way. Christ died for sinners with affection because he loved his Father. Though Christ has a true affection and love for us, his love does not terminate on us. Christ did not love us because we are the end-all, be-all of his affection. No. He loved us. He served us with affection because Christ supremely loves the Father. At the end of John 17, verse 25, if you want to uh, read this with me, John 17, verse 25, Christ says these words. He's praying to the Father. He has us in view, brothers, and we need to take that into account. All believers, He knows who He was praying for. He says this, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know You, I know. And these, know, and these know that you have sent me. I have made known to you your, them your name, and I will continue to make it known for the purpose that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. In these final words of Jesus' prayer, Christ is affirming his unique relation to the Father. I know you. In these words, he is saying, Father, I loved you. I have loved you. You are the object of my affections, and I serve you. In his earthly ministry, Christ came to serve the Father in a sacrificial way. Christ voluntarily gave, uh, came under the terms that the Father gave him in order to save those that the Father had chosen. This is what we, these are the realities that we read of in Philippians 2 and Ephesians 1. But there is a prior love. There is a beautiful, glorious prior love that existed between the Father and the Son. And he goes on to show his love, how, the, how his love for the Father impacts us. Christ's mission was and is to make known the, the name of the Father. Verse 26a. So in his sacrificial, sacrificial affection-filled love for the Father, Christ's love extends out beyond himself. Jesus loved God with all his might, as we said. It impacted others outside himself. And here's the key. Love always accomplishes something. In the biblical worldview, love always accomplishes something. What does Christ's love accomplish? What does Jesus' love for the Father do for others? The last half of verse 26 gives, gives us that answer. That the love with which you had loved me, that kind of love may be in them and I in them. Brothers, of all the various mysteries that the Bible presents to us to ponder, I believe Jesus gives us the greatest in this verse. Jesus wants us to experience the same quality and measure of love that the Father has for the Son, and we experience it through our union with Him, with Christ. This is no sacrificial love between the Father and the Son. In his earthly ministry, Christ, yes, as the God-man, had to show his love through his service and sacrifice in order to save us sinners. But there is an eternal and divine love that existed between the Father and the Son prior to Christ's incarnation and ministry. This intra-Trinitarian love between the Father and the Son undergirded Christ the God-man in his sacrificial love to the Father and to us. And it is this intra-Trinitarian love that God, our God, our Christ, calls us to. He calls us to experience the love that exists between the Father and the Son. The eternal love that exists between the Father and the Son. He bids us to come and to enjoy. Of course, this is not an invitation to become divine or anything like that. But it is a true loving fellowship in the Trinitarian being of God through our union with Christ. In Christ, I in them, with Christ, 
we now know and we get to experience and we get to gaze and ponder upon the love between the Father and the Son. Paul prays for the church that they know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Ephesians 3.19 To even to begin to describe the love between the persons of the Trinity is not possible. That love is ineffable. It is not even able to be spoken of or characterized because it is too glorious. Yet Christ is bidding us to come and ponder this unspeakable reality. The love that the Father has for me, the Son can be experienced by all who are united to me. Brothers, with all that is in view, it is far better for people who are so self-absorbed, for people who care so much about themselves, for people who think all of life terminates on them, brother, it is so much better. It is far better to know that Christ's service and affection for me does not terminate on me. If Christ simply served me for my sake alone, I could not experience this glorious reality of the love between the Father and the Son. It was because of the love between the Father and the Son in eternity past that they agreed that the Son would come and serve us in sacrificial, affectionate love. But the purpose of the Father and Son's love was that we too would experience the love, grandeur, and glory of God Himself. In Christ, we can peek behind the curtain in the unveiled glorious love between the Father and the Son. We get to gaze upon the glorious picture of our God's love for himself in the persons of the Trinity and also, to some degree, experience that love for ourselves in Christ. We experience this love because our Christ has beckoned us to it. Christ, as the God-man, sacrificially loved us in order to lead us to the experience, the fullness of glorious divine love between God himself. He is love. And we have him and experience that love in Christ. And in Christ we see the love of God. And it does surpass our understanding. By Christ truly loving his fellow man through sacrifice too and affection for both God and man, he provides us the path to gaze upon the glorious love of God in himself. This is what love is, brothers. This is what it does. This is what Christian love leads to. Christian love is not altruism. We don't do it because it seems nice. We do it because it leads image bearers like me and you to marvel and worship before the glorious nature of our God. Brother, God, brothers, God loves His glory. Amen? No, 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 no. I'm a Baptist. God loves His glory. Amen? No, 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 no. God loves His glory. Amen? Amen. Christ is our example of love. Because Christ's love brings others to worship. If the glory of God is our chief end, then we love in our affections and service so that others may worship the glorious God of ours. So brothers, coming all the way back to Matthew 22, verse 39, when we read Christ's words, love your neighbor as yourself, we should know what he's commanding. He is telling us to follow his example of loving others with a devoted sacrificial service with genuine affection for our neighbors. But he wants us to lead our neighbors to the glorious worship of our God. So brothers, do not love, do you love God? If this is your disposition, if you love God, then love your neighbors so that they may also peer into that glorious vision and majesty of our God in worship and praise. Love your neighbors sacrificially and genuinely because that is God's means to bring worshipers to his throne. Your love does not terminate on them, brothers. Your love catapults unbelievers. It catapults image bearers before the throne of God in worship and in praise.
I need a minute after that one. I wish I could speak on that undescribable reality for the rest of my life, but unfortunately, as I said, it's unspeakable. And we can only begin to ponder and imagine from what we have in the scriptures what this love is going to look like in glory. But moving on to our second point for the night, the word neighbor in Matthew 22, verse 39, should be looked at as well. Verse 39 is a uh, reference, just a quick side note, a reference to Leviticus 19.18. In that section of Leviticus, uh, fellow Israelites, verse 17 if you go there, believers, as well as sojourners, are those who Israel was to show love. It is interesting that Jesus, uh, Jesus references this section because it does underscore what we saw in our first point. The section that he is referencing comes from the larger section of Leviticus 17 and 22, uh, commonly called the laws concerning holiness and profanity. In order to participate in God's worship in the Old Testament, you had to conform to certain religious and ceremonial laws, which made a person holy if kept properly. Interestingly, uh, Leviticus 19 deals with the more ethical or moral aspects of holiness. In order to participate in and benefit from worship, you were to exhibit an outwardly ethical and loving life, and not merely ceremonial separation. More can be said about this, but I believe this solidifies what we see in our last point. Loving our fellow man really is about the worship of God. The love of neighbor should propel us to worship to the worship of God. But but with that said, following the the horizontal laws of the Old Testament, Israel were uh, were called to love their fellow neighbor, whether an insider or outsider. That that was the the basis for how they were uh, supposed to love one another. They were to love either the fellow Israelite, the believer, or the sojourner within their gate, the alien, possibly the non-believer. Though the Scriptures are clear in the Old Testament that they were to love uh, our fellow man despite his or her, her background, there were illegitimate questions by the Jews in Jesus' day concerning the definition of neighbor. In those days of heightened tensions between various ethno-religious and socio-political groups, eisegesis of certain texts became more frequent. It sounds familiar today, doesn't it? For example, in one of our parallel passages, Luke 10 uh, a man is questioning Jesus. Um, he, he, he cites Leviticus 19, verse 18. Jesus gives him an affirmation to what he states about loving our neighbor. But the man, and you're probably familiar with this, who is a lawyer, questioned further. He asked this question. After, after he hears that, that uh, after he repeats, it's the man who is saying it. He says, who is my neighbor? Or I'm sorry. Uh, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He then immediately questions Jesus, but who is my neighbor? And it's in this uh, constant probing that we get the parable of the Good Samaritan. With Jesus' allusions to priests, Levites, and Samaritans, uh, Jesus is most likely confronting the, the common Israelite thought that neighbors only extended to those who were in the confines of their religious groups or nationality. Uh, we also get a hint of that in Matthew 5. But in Jesus' eyes, there was no division that broke what it meant to be a neighbor, except maybe morals. We'll we'll get to that in just a second. At the end of the parable of the Good Samaritan, the lawyer concludes with Jesus' aid, who is his neighbor. The man who went out of his way to help a man whom he had no allegiance to was considered a neighbor. The merciful Samaritan proved to be a neighbor himself. Rather than narrow the field as the lawyer intended, Jesus did the opposite when the question of who is my neighbor was introduced. He expanded the domain of who was to be included in the eyes of his fellow man. So what we can take away from this parable is that neighbors are those that we may not have an affinity toward. The conception of an enemy in Jesus' day was anyone who was not among your class, clan, or party. But Jesus' definition breaks down that harmful and tribal definition. These people aren't enemies, but they don't have to be comrades with you or pals with you either. 
If you would, please turn to Matthew 5.38. Matthew 5. This again is similar to the Good Samaritan passage. Um, This is Matthew 5. In this passage, passage, we get questions like this. And it kind of extends this question further. Who is my neighbor? So right now we have, uh, it could be your pals, or it could just be a a sojourner, someone that you don't have a close affinity towards, but he is still to be considered a neighbor. By Matthew 5.38, it extends a little bit further, this, this idea of love. In this passage, we get the questions like this. If we love those who love us, what reward do we have? Even our supposed enemies do the exact same things. They love the ones who are around us. So for Jesus, good neighboring, good loving of our fellow man includes going beyond where we are immediately comfortable and wholeheartedly giving ourselves to others. The Good Samaritan didn't only bandage the man up, he took him into town and paid an innkeeper to look after him. But on top of that, the Good Samaritan said he would be coming back. That astounds me. That is not some half-hearted altruism that we think being a good neighbor is today. The Samaritan exemplified the quality of love that one is to have for his neighbor, even a stranger. With that said, I will suggest that a neighbor is simply anyone who is not an enemy. Whether familiar or not, anyone is to be the object of our love, and we are to show that in meaningful ways. But I hope there is a growing question in your mind with my definition of neighbor. What about people who are antagonistic against me? What about my enemies? Jesus in Matthew 5.38 goes on into detail what we should do with our enemies. If you are slapped, if you are sued for a tunic, if you are forced to walk a mile, you take the hit, you give up your cloak also, and you walk two miles. In the context of arguing against a false application of what has been called lex talionis, uh, it's simply the, the retribution principle, eye for an eye. But the Pharisees didn't see it that way. They actually expanded it into very hurtful uh, ways. The Pharisees thought of lex talionis, the retribution principle, as personal vengeance is now warranted. That was their understanding of the retribution principle. So what Jesus does in this passage in Matthew 5, Jesus is underscoring the patience and humility that is to mark our love for our enemies. Just a side note on on this point. Jesus does not nullify the idea of restitution for wrong abuses, but he is calling for how we are supposed to respond to wrongs done. We're not to seek personal vengeance, but we can and should seek justice when grievous wrongs have been done. Jesus' idea on this subject is summed up in Matthew 5, verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of the Father who is in heaven. Just as the Father sends rain and shine upon the good and evil alike, we are to show some measure of love to our enemies. So we can argue that there are two categories of people, neighbors and enemies, but we are called to love them both. So when we hear the words, love your neighbor as yourself, we can't parse out enemies like we want as much as we sinfully want. We are still called to love them. So then, uh, coming to my final major point, some invocations for how we understand this love, this sacrificial, affectionate love for God stemming over into our sacrificial love for neighbor and our neighbor including both people that we know, people that we don't know, and people that are antagonistic towards us. We have two words, love and neighbor, that we sought to look at from the whole of Scripture. And I I just scratched the surface here, brothers. From a deeper study of these words, we can understand Jesus' commandment to love our neighbor. We are genuinely and affectionately to serve our fellow man, either our friend, uh, someone that is apathetic to, to us, or antagonistic to us. If this is a legitimate definition of what Jesus is calling us to do, to love in this way, this command to love needs to be parsed out into our daily lives. 
So I want to bring out some implications of this kind of love. I have three subpoints as it relates to the love of neighbor. Um, so don't worry, these are a little bit quicker. Some of these are more generalized points, but towards the end, I want us to give more thought to the love of neighbor and enemy. So first subpoint, categories of love. The moral law, as it was expanded out in Deuteronomy 6 to 26, at 26, exhorted Israel to various approaches to love. For example, the Sixth Commandment commentary uh, that we saw this year, Israel was to practice just war uh, laws. Uh, they, they were to exercise the laws concerning just war practices. But it also detailed what happened when men were captured for Israel, or, or for marriage in war by Israel. The Israelites were to allow an allotment of time and grief for their new wives before they consummated their marriage. For the Eighth Commandment, uh, we, we, we see that a person didn't have the right to take someone's harvest, but a casual gleaning for poor travelers was allotted. We saw these different ways in which the laws uh, were to be applied in certain circumstances, uh, but we also saw general principles of good neighboring in the midst of the laws. And again, these, these were the old covenant laws and principles, and, and we can glean from them through our understanding of the moral law. Some may be more appropriate for our time, others not. But, but the general principles are rooted in the Ten Commandments, and these continue for us uh, and are binding upon all men. And the general principle of love to neighbor uh, is particularly interesting, uh, to say the least. There's more I could say on this, but I won't bore you with that. During my, uh, the sermon series, I try my best to communicate the general principles of the law. But I think it would be more helpful to expound on some categories of law in a more precise way. So follow with me. Israel was to love their fellow man by means of justice, by means of mercy, and by means of grace. I'm using these three terms, justice, mercy, grace, in a rather strict and precise way. For example, the scriptures may say uh, the term mercy when explaining the concept of grace, or even mercy for explaining justice. Luke 6.36 calls us to be merciful as our Heavenly Father is merciful, but I would argue that the term grace would be the better concept to understand what the God does for us in that particular passage. I'll explain once I get my paper out of the way. A definition for justice. So coming to definitions. A definition for justice is rewarding what one is owed. We can think of this in two ways. If I was employed at a Chick-fil-A, perchance, and my employer paid me the agreed-upon salary, he was being just. He was rewarding that which was owed to me. Now, we may not think of justice as being loving, but the absence of justice is certainly unloving. Amen? Let's say it's payday, but my employer holds out payment for no justifiable reason. He is withholding my due. He is being unjust and unloving. So I would argue that being just is the threshold of love. Without justice, you cannot have love. We might have a raccoon. I would define mercy in this way. So mercy... It is the withholding of punishment. Let's say the employer is being unjust. I had the right, the just cause, to hold him accountable. I would be perfectly loving for holding him accountable. But instead of taking that route, I take a higher route of love and I absorb the blow. I do not hold him liable for the punishment. I simply accept the blow. This is mercy. And is a category, it's a higher category of love. But grace is something that goes further than mercy. Grace is often called demerited favor. Rather than enact the punishment for injustice, I extend favor to the, uh, to the one who has been unjust. This would be me writing a check out to my employer. Grace is the opposite of justice. Rather than get what they deserve, we give them the opposite, favor. You know, uh, most of us are probably worried right now that there's someone's breaking in, um, but I think we'll be okay, y'all. 
No, that's not the case. It's probably a child yeah, or a raccoon. Always go with the raccoon in Mississippi. Um, but let me give you this example that happened with me and Mary not too long ago. I'm sorry. It's such a good story. Mary the other day got yelled at by a man mowing his uh, lawn. Uh, and he's the property manager for our apartment complex. Um, and, you know, we pick up after our dog. You know, that, that was the whole scenario. I won't go, go into it because it's talking about dog mess. So, you know, we won't go down that road. Um, but Mary was unjustifiably um, yelled at. It, it was an act of injustice, you could say. It was at least unpolite. There, there could be three routes that Mary could take. There's three routes that Mary could take. She could say, you know what? I'm going to ask for an apology because that is the just thing to do. I have just cause to ask for an apology. She has another route. She can say, you know what? I'm just going to let it. It it hurts, but I'm going to accept the blow. But then there's the third route of love. And thankfully, my wife is much more holier than I am. And she has led me in this way. Or she had shown me uh, what true love looks like in, in Christian love. Is that she actually, instead of going against that man, being cruel to that man, or just simply absorbing the blow uh, and just, you know, having it be a closed case, she actually went out of her way to clean up a dead cat, to clean up garbage around the, uh, the, the place in which she was probably responsible for, and all various other means of grace. She was showing love to this enemy a very mean man, someone who, when I think of, my mind goes to die-hard episodes, and I I want to be filled with utter rage. Um, But Mary didn't do that. She showed grace. So with that said, just with these examples in our head, with these categories of love in place, I want to tackle some nettling problems. Uh, and to try to provide a solution for everyone in the sermon would, is, is, undoable, is undoable. I just want to probe uh, at some societal ills that we're facing uh, in certain church discu- discussions, um, particularly as it comes to uh, societies and, and individuals. One issue that often gets talked about is the nature of biblical love and our command to love. For example, in seminary, I heard some students asking the questions of how the laws of the year of Jubilee and the restitution laws apply to the idea of slave reparations. I don't want to get into the dynamics of that topic, but it is interesting how one of the students became so agitated with the answer of the professor. The professor answered with a clear and biblical saturated answer, but it was not the answer the student was looking for. The student's response was that he was called to love one another and do justice. And justice is found in God's law. But this is where we need to be careful. In the student's response, there was an underlying assumption over the nature of justice, mercy, and grace. Often, and especially nowadays when people talk about justice, mercy, grace, they, they group them together. They're just a synonym for one another. So justice is another way to have mercy, and mercy and grace are are simply another ways to do justice. It is true that doing mercy and grace is called righteousness according to the Scriptures, but this is another example of how the Scriptures can have a more fluid definition at times. Though they are incorrect in affirming that mercy and gracious acts of love is righteousness for us, they are confusing key categories that we outlined above. So where am I going with this? This is how the uncritical logic unfolds. If love is ultimately the fulfilling of the law, and mercy and grace are required in law, it follows that to love your fellow man, you must always require Christians to show mercy and grace. So these brothers are exhorting us to love one another as the scriptures present. That's good, but their definitions and assumptions create problems down the line. And there are various ways in which this plays out. And it often breaks down towards the end. But sometimes it is consistent all the way through. And that's where it becomes a problem. To give an older example um, of this uncritical love, uh, of how we are to interact with these major societal ills as a church, 
uh, we could look at mass murder. What should love look like when we deal with, as a society and as, as a church, with a mass murderer? Should mercy be extended to grace? Should mercy be extended or grace be extended so that this mass murderer, whoever he is, is set free? Well, for the victim's family, they would appropriately feel injustice would take place if that were to take place. So what is the appropriate response and actions for the church should take at that time? What's the appropriate response? If all these things are the exact same thing, that we do justice, that we do uh, mercy, they're the same thing, right? Now, this is a cartoonish example, but it is one that was actually discussed in the 70s and 80s. What I'm trying to draw out of this example is the need for biblical wisdom to parse out the categories of love, justice, mercy, and grace. And we also need to know how to apply it in the appropriate context. Sometimes our actions and responses to our fellow man may require the particular category of justice. Sometimes mercy and grace to the fullest extent is not the appropriate response to love, of love. Sometimes where justice is executed, the response of mercy or even grace would have been more appropriate at that point. The exact same response for every societal or personal ill should not be affirmed by Christians. This this just underscores the fact that there is a great need of wisdom as the church tries to engage with complex moral issues. You can tell I've been going back to some philosophy textbooks this week. So I apologize if this is a bit more dry. But with that said, we should never be afraid to approach complex moral issues. But we do need to approach them wisely and with love. So when we hear the words, love your neighbor as yourself, loving our neighbor and our enemies requires wisdom. If you are to engage in difficult conversation like this, you must exhibit biblical wisdom in order to love properly. Some people have been truly hurt through abuse. People have been beaten near to death. And yes, there's a high calling in showing love and grace, but that might not be the appropriate response in all circumstances. Now then, I don't know where I am, folks. I'm so sorry. (laughs) Um, This leads to our last sub-point. Grace, though this is true, that grace, uh, that, that we need to be careful with how we talk about societal ills, how we deal with all the various things that, that are so complicated, even in our day and age. This is our last sub-point. Though every response in loving our neighbor should not be exactly the same, grace should be the natural, or I should say the supernatural disposition of the Christian, even with our enemies. As we've noted, not every scenario requires mercy and grace, but it should be the natural disposition of the Christian. The reason this is the case is because it is rooted and grounded in the very character of God. In Luke 6.36, Jesus commands us to be merciful as God is merciful, but His mercy is qualified by the action of showing grace. Luke in 6.35 states this, But love your enemies. This is Jesus talking to His people. But love your enemies and do good. And lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be the sons of the Most High. And he qualifies it. The Son, Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Brothers, these are incredibly challenging words for us. As we think about all the possible enemies that we have in our lives. There are so many verses of scriptures that speak to the issue of loving neighbor. In Romans 13, 8-10, Paul directly links the six commandments with the love of neighbor. But chapters, in chapter 12, 14, he talks about how we are to love our neighbor, neighbors, even the persecutors of the church. Verse 14 of chapter 12 of Romans. 
Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, written, vengeance is mine and I will repay, says the Lord. So to the contrary of seeking personal vengeance, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Paul quotes scripture. Proverbs 25. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Brothers, this should be the natural disposition of the Christian. We are called to love our enemies through service and genuine affection, even if they do not come to the Lord, unbelievers may still see and affirm that our works are good. But even in the worst scenario of persecution and our enemies, uh, and, and of our enemies, the love and justice of our Lord will be met out. That's why we don't take vengeance. Paul isn't calling us to passivity in our affections, but he is calling us to deem the gospel of Christ and the will of God as sufficient during our persecution. So brothers, if what we've seen is true, if loving our enemies is for the purpose that they might be brought to God, then we should expect God to bring his enemies to himself. Paul, when the most heinous persecutors of the church knew this reality, he says this in 1 Timothy 1.15. This is the last passage I'm going to preach on, uh, speak on. Please turn there with me. 1 Timothy 1 verse 15. 1 Timothy 1 verse 15. He says this here. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, enemies of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy, catch this, for this reason, that in me, as the foremost of enemies, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example of those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul's salvation as the worst enemy of God was for a purpose. And the purpose is exactly what we've seen tonight. He was saved by God to show the glory of Christ and the salvation of enemies. Brothers, this is the first verse I memorized as a Christian because it resonated with me. But I need to be reminded of it so often because of my own pride and sin. For me, when I look out into the world and I see what, has been, uh, uh, what I could have been, I get angry. I see where the direction of my life was going before Christ saved me. I can see myself in those lunatic rioters. I can see myself in those leftist ideologues. I truly do. As influenced as I was by the message of of radical feminism, of the LGBTQ community, and all the other isms out there, I now disdain everything that it stands for in my being. I despise it. But as Paul reminds me, I was in that. I could have been that. And I still see too much of that spirit in me. But Christ saved me so that I can love them, my enemies, so that they can know of the grace and love of Christ. It's so easy to say that they're too far gone, that they're stuck in the thick of it. So why bother? But Christ did not do that to me. He loved me while I was an enemy. He loved you while you were an enemy. Brothers, if this is the love, this is the character of God, is this what, if this is what we are called to as Christians, may we love our enemies so that they can know the life-changing love of Christ. Brothers, our love, even for our enemies, is to have His enemies thrown against the kingdom walls to either stand before Him in judgment or to have the gates fall down and welcome the men. May Christ enable us to love our enemies in this way so that he might receive all glory, all glory from all worshipers, even the foremost of enemies, forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you that you say the foremost of sinners and that you have loved us with an everlasting love. And may we never disdain another individual or people because we see so much of our own sin in them. Lord, may we serve them affectionately, even when it's hard. May we love them, whoever our enemies may be, that they might know the surpassing worth of knowing Christ as Savior. Lord, we we pray this for them so that they may pray to you. We ask this in your Son's name. Amen.